Turn with me this morning to the book of Acts, the eighth chapter. The Lord began to speak to me about this message at least a couple of weeks ago, maybe longer than that. And it, it, just, it just touched my heart and it's so important to me. This is, this is one of those areas in the scripture where it's, it's my heartbeat. Dick Foth said years ago, um, every, everyone has a, a message that they get to no matter what. Eventually it, it comes around. He said, you know, you, you can have a guy that believes in prayer and he can start in the maps and end up on prayer. You know. This, this is one of those places where it's, it's my passion. So I want to read beginning at verse number one and just read down through verse number four, but you, you may want to keep, keep your Bible open to Acts chapter eight. We'll be referring back there quite a bit this morning as, as well as a number of other places in the book of Acts. Beginning at verse number one, now Saul was consenting to his death. Now, he's talk, Luke is talking about Stephen here. If you're not familiar, Stephen has just been martyred in chapter seven of the book of Acts. At that time, great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. I've titled this message this morning, Scattered. Many years ago, and, and I think I've lived long enough now that I can, I can talk about many years ago. Okay, I'm that old. Some of you say, yeah, you're older than dirt. You know, it, it just, you know, I was alive when the Dead Sea was only sick. It was just, just that way. But, I was teaching a, a, a teacher training course where this passage was mentioned and the commentator said, this scattering was as if you were to dip a, a shovel down into a bed of glowing embers and to take it and broadcast it over a field of dry vegetation and everywhere one of those fiery coals would land the plants would flare and burst into flame and a new Christian congregation was born because they were scattered. I tell you today that I see a need for the fire to be rekindled. For the power of God, the spirit of God, to work in a fresh way in the people of God. And, and there needs to be a new scattering take place. 
needs to be where everywhere we touch, that every place that you as God's people go, that, that the power of God is demonstrated and, and people find in themselves a hunger for what you've got, for what you've got. I, uh, I remember years ago, Carmen used to sing a song called Some of That. I want some of that. I want people that come in contact with you to say in their spirits, I want some of that, some of that. You see, hopefully, it doesn't take persecution to scatter us. I, I, I don't want persecution. I don't want to suffer, but folks, the church is being marginalized. Josh and I had lunch yesterday and, and we talked about this at lunch, how the church is being marginalized in our, in our culture today. And, and so we don't know what's going to happen, but whatever happens, we need to be that burning ember, the spirit of God burning in us so that we can reach out and touch the lives of people that so desperately need the Lord in their lives and in their hearts. Sometimes pastor tells us at the beginning of a sermon, I need you to listen on purpose today. How many of you have heard? Yeah, yeah, listen on purpose today. That's the way I feel about this message. Got a lot of ground to cover. And, and so I, I need you to stay with me. Two weeks ago, when John was preaching, John made a bold and correct statement from this pulpit. He said, we are a Pentecostal church. Let me tell you something, folks. We are a Pentecostal church. And to be Pentecostal is not just a name, it's an experience. It is to be baptized with the Holy Ghost, with the Holy Spirit. You see, from our inception, we and many other of our sister fellowships, we have believed that the baptism with the Holy Spirit is an experience subsequent to salvation, and that the initial physical evidence of this baptism is speaking with other tongues. So in this message this morning, I want first of all to show you evidence that speaking with tongues took place in the five initial Pentecosts in the book of Acts. There's five of them, okay? And then I want to give you biblical proof that the Spirit's infilling was a second work to move in the lives of believers. So first of all, let's look at the five Pentecostal outpourings and demonstrate the presence of speaking in tongues in these initial experiences found in five chapters of the book of Acts. The first one is in chapter two, and it's the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. It's the, it's the very first, the very first Pentecostal experience. The second one is in chapter eight, and that's the Samaritan Pentecost. The third is chapter nine, that's the spirits infilling of the apostle Paul. Chapter 10 is the Gentile Pentecost at the home of Cornelius in Caesarea Maritima. And then chapter 19 is the spirit filling the believers in the city of Ephesus. So let's take a look at what happened in each of these instances. First, let me tell you that when you look at the scripture, you look at any of these five experiences, these first 
Pentecostal experiences that they had there, anytime an evidence is given, tongues is included. Anytime there is an evidence, tongues is always part of, of, the, of the discussion, part of the conversation. So in, in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, Scripture tells us that there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind. There came cloven tongues or divided tongues of fire that sat upon each of them. And they all spoke with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Okay, so that's, that's plain. The Gentile Pentecost at the house of Cornelius. Uh, these people had been praying, seeking God, and an angel appeared to Cornelius and he sent for Peter. And Peter came down and began to preach to them there. And, and as he was preaching, the scripture says that the Spirit fell on them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And there were a number of Jewish believers that came down with Peter and it said that these Jewish believers that were there knew that they had the Holy Spirit because they heard them speak with tongues. That's, that's pretty plain, pretty plain. And then it, in the book of Ephesians, the scripture tells us that when Paul and his companions met the believers at the river, that Paul asked them, have you, heard, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And when they had not, he baptized them in the name of Jesus and then laid hands on them and they began to speak with other tongues and prophesy. So we've got three times in, of the five, three of the five, that mention evidence, and in every case, tongues is mentioned. Then we go into chapter 9 to the infilling of the Apostle Paul, and we, we see there that Ananias comes down to the house of, of Jude where, where Paul was, was praying and fasting and seeking the Lord, and of course he had been blinded on the, the, the uh, uh, road to Damascus by, by the bright light, and here he was praying and seeking the Lord, and when Ananias came down, he, he said, I've come to pray for you that, that you be healed and that you be filled with the Spirit. And so he laid his hands on him, and the Scripture says he received the Holy Ghost. Well, it, it doesn't say anything about tongues, so how do we know that Paul spoke with tongues? The, the easy answer to this is because he said so. Okay? In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse number 1, Paul says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and I don't have love, then I'm like a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. But more clearly than that, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse number 18, Paul says to the believers, I thank my God that I speak with tongues more than you all. So we know that Paul spoke with tongues because he said he did. He said he did. And then we come to the the experience at Samaria, the Samaritan Pentecost. And here it gets a little stickier because we don't have any real statement that says these people spoke with tongues. It, it, it says that, that they, were, they were saved, that they believed, that they were baptized. But the apostles who were at Jerusalem sent Peter and John down and they said, go down there and check this out. You know, I contend that, that once in a while on Sunday evening when I teach the Bible study back here, that the, the, the pastor sends one of the deacons in to check that I'm not teaching heresy. That, that may have been, 
That may have been what was going on. The apostles said, you know, we hear this is going on down there. They've got revival going on down at Samaria. Go down there and see and make sure everything's copacetic, that everything's going right. But when they got down there, they found they had believed. They found they had been baptized, but they hadn't received the Holy Spirit, and so they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit into their lives. That's it. That's all Luke says. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So how do we deduce that believers spoke with tongues when they received the Holy Spirit in Samaria? First of all, let me tell you, something dramatic happened. Because Simon, who had been a sorcerer, before he turned his life over to the Lord, said, let me pay you to have the power so that I can lay hands on people and they can receive the Holy Spirit. And you say, that, man, that's something when he says, let me empty my pockets. Let me give you money. Now, Peter chided him because he thought you could, you could buy the gift of the Holy Spirit. You could buy this power to give the, the, the people this, this touch of God on their lives. And Peter said, this isn't right at all. You're wrong in your heart. You're wrong in your spirit. But, but we do know that something dramatic happened. So why do we believe he was seeking the power to lay hands on people so that they would begin speaking in tongues. The answer lies in what had already happened under Philip's ministry. Now, I told you to keep Acts chapter 8 open. Look at verses 6 through 8. As you read down through there, you will find that there were multitudes that were drawn to the ministry. You will see that they gave great attention to the message, that they in one accord listened to the message. They were drawn there. There was unity. You know, I heard one time that somebody said the miracle at Jericho, when Israel walked around and the walls fell down, the miracle wasn't the walls falling down. The miracle was that he got everybody marching the same direction at the same time. That's what takes place here. These people are in one accord. They're, they're drawn to the message and they're listening with great unity. And when they did that, they saw miracles. Demons were cast out. The paralyzed and the lame were healed. And great joy filled the city. Now, when you begin to check off the list, you say, what's missing here? You know, if you've got people saved and you got miracles done, and you got the, the, the sick are healed, and the demons are cast out, and everybody's filled with great joy. What's missing? Tongues is missing. Speaking with tongues is missing. So I believe, and, and not just me, there are scholars and even non-Pentecostal scholars who say what had to happen was they spoke with tongues. They spoke with tongues. So you may ask, why, why speak with tongues? Let me tell you, a better, a better question is, is why the tongue? Can I tell you that the scripture tells us that the most rebellious muscle in the body is the tongue? Look at James chapter three, verse number eight. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. 
So God needs your tongue. God needs to be able to speak through you, to fill you and baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. First Peter chapter three, verse number 10 says, for he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. If you surrender your tongue to the Lord, you can surrender your life to the Lord. You can turn it all over to the Lord. If you pray in the tongues, here's another reason. If you pray in tongues, scripture tells us that it is the spirit praying through us, praying with the mind of Jesus. You know, Paul said to the church at, at, at Philippi, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And if we pray in tongues, it is the spirit praying in the, the mind of Jesus and the will of God, it, putting it all in, in the hands of the Lord and the will of God is prayed perfectly. Romans chapter eight, verse number 27. Now he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the, what the mind of the spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. You see, if speaking with tongues was the evidence unique to all of these initial experiences, we, as Pentecostals, believe, though it is not the only evidence, it is the initial physical evidence of a person receiving the fullness of the Spirit, Spirit's power into their lives. It is the Pentecostal distinctive. Okay? So moving on, let's let's. Let's discuss the reasons why, why we believe that this baptism with the Holy Spirit is subsequent to salvation. Chapter 8 is the clearest presentation of this, of any place in the Scripture. It's not the only place, but it's the clearest presentation of it. So let's look at, at, at three things here. First of all, let's look at persecution. Secondly, let's look at preaching. And thirdly, let's look at the promise. First of all, we're going to talk about the persecution. Stephen, a spirit-empowered deacon, was stoned and became the first Christian to die for his faith. Okay? Later on, James, the brother of John, the apostle James, was the first apostle to be martyred. And the scripture tells us that he was beheaded. We also see that Peter was imprisoned with the intent of taking his head from his shoulders. Scripture tells us that when Herod saw that it pleased the people for him to kill James and behead James, he just put Peter in the prison and he decided they did, he'd take Peter's, Peter's head from his shoulders. You see, such persecution was the catalyst for scattering the church that is talked about in Acts chap chapter 8, verses 1 and 4. The, this persecution took place and the people just left. Let me tell you something. If, if the authorities were to come into this church, this church, and take our pastor and cut his head off, God forbid, but if they were to do that, let me tell you something. We'd go someplace where it's safer. Everybody do like this, okay? We'd go somewhere where it's safer. 
because we don't want to be around that. And that's, that's what happened. These people saw this persecution that was taking place and they said, let's go somewhere else. There are other cities, there are other areas that are more amenable to us and, and, and they won't treat us like they're treating believers here in Jerusalem. And some scholars tell you that what is taking place here is that Jesus, before he was ascended, said, now, now go tell other people, go everywhere. Go, go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth, go everywhere and tell them about this. But the people were so happy and they were so satisfied with what was going on there in, the, in Jerusalem, but kind of like me when I come here to church. I, oh, I'm so glad to be here. I'm happy to be here. But the Lord said, now you need to go everywhere. And, and, and share the message. But they say, ah, oh, it's just so comfortable to be here. Hello? It's just, so, it's just so pleasant to be in God's house among God's people and worshiping and feeling the presence of God and seeing people saved. And, but when the persecution took place, they said, hmm, it's kind of like, kind of like the old eagle that stirs up the nest so the little eaglet has to get out and find a place of its own. And, and, and God was stirring up the nest and he, this, this persecution helped them fulfill the go ye that Jesus had commanded before he was ascended. So this, this persecution had, had played a real part in what was going on in the church. And, and I'm, I'm telling you, I don't want it to take place here. I don't want you, I don't want me to suffer, but we do need to be scattered. We need to be scattered to our jobs. We need to be scattered to our communities. We need to be scattered to our schools. We need to go, we need to be that burning ember that touches those that are dry and that they need the fire in their lives and they reach out and get what God has for them because you were sent there by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's the persecution. Secondly, Let's talk about the preaching. Acts chapter eight and verse number four tells us that those scattered went everywhere preaching. Now, we believe in preaching. We also believe in teaching, okay? But what's the difference, you know? Somebody told me years ago that every time I preach, I preach teach. You know, I, I hope that when you walk away from here, you say, I learned something today that I didn't know before. Uh, made sense of the scripture. So, I, you know, I, I know I'm a teacher. I know I'm that. But it, it, teaching is the process of discipleship. It's building us up on a foundation of faith. It's a layering of truth. It's what we do in our life groups on Wednesday evenings. I don't know whether you've noticed that or not, but every week we just build another layer and another layer and another layer and it just adds to it. Layer upon layer, line upon line, here a little, there a little. It's the building up. That's what teaching is. That's what teaching is. Preaching, on the other hand, is a message that demands decision and action. These who were scattered called their hearers to choose for or against Christ. 
And let me tell you this morning, when I get done, I'm going to give you an opportunity to make a decision and act if you have not been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Philip, as was Stephen, was a spirit-empowered deacon. Let me tell you that ministry does not only belong to those called to preach. It is not intended that ministry only take place behind the pulpit. All Christians are commissioned to share the good news. And I would hope that a lot of you would have said amen there because it's the truth. All of us are commissioned to share the good news. Now I know we're not all the same. I know God uses us in different ways, but, but we need to live a life in such a way that people that come in contact with us, when the opportunity comes up, we say, you know, if nothing else, say, well, we sure had a good service at church yesterday. Pastor sure preached a good message yesterday. Boy, did we have a good time at church. Because I'm telling you what, this is a fine, now nah, let me go, let's go beyond that. This is a great congregation. This is a great place to worship God. Let me tell you something, I've been places where I wasn't sure I wanted to invite people there. Hello? But I'm eager to invite people to Christ Legacy Church because this is a great congregation. You see, Philip's preaching was obviously powerful. It was spirit empowered. It was accompanied by signs and miracles. And eight, chapter eight, verse number 12 says, but when they believed, Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. And so what you see here is Philip preached, they believed, and Philip baptized them in water. That's what's going on here. So when the preaching took place and people believed, people acted on that and they were baptized in water. Just like we had happen here not too long ago. So we have the persecution, the preaching. Then there is the promise. Luke refers to the baptism with the Holy Spirit as the promise, the promise. Look at Luke chapter 24, verse number 49. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Acts 2.39, this is one of my favorite scriptures. Acts 2.39, for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, even as many as the Lord our God will call. Let me tell you something, friend, today. This baptism with the Holy Spirit isn't just for the preachers that sit up here on the pulpit, up on the platform. It isn't just for the singers that sing up here on the worship team. It isn't just for the leaders of, uh, of, the, of the life groups that we have on Wednesday night. It isn't just for them. It's for you. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, even as many as the Lord shall call. Let me tell you something, it was for my grandmother, and for my mother, and for me, and for my daughters, 
and for my granddaughter. It's for all of us. Let me tell you, God wants to work in every generation, in every generation. There are other passages of scripture, if you want to write them down, Acts 1, 4 talks about the promise, Acts 2, 33 talks about the promise. But the people of Samaria believed, but something was missing. Something was missing. The apostles of Jerusalem heard of their conversion, but they had not received the baptism with the Holy Spirit, so they sent Peter and John, who laid hands on them, and they received the fullness of the Spirit. It's very clear in this chapter that the baptism of the Spirit was subsequent and separate to the experience of salvation. Paul asked the Ephesians, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? I ask you that question this morning. Have you received the baptism with the Holy Spirit since you believed? You see, if you have not, the promise is for you. The promise is for you. I'm gonna give an invitation here in just a few moments and give you an opportunity to come up but there may be questions in your mind and say, how, how do I receive? How does a person receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit? So let me, let me give you, first of all, some just real general, real, real general guidance, okay? First of all, you've got to be saved. You're not a candidate for water baptism or spirit baptism if you're not saved. You've got to be saved, all right? Secondly, there is no fixed method or magic formula. No magic bullet, okay? It's a surrendering of your life and of your tongue to the work that God wants to do in the life of every believer. Third, it is biblical for people to pray for you and with you. It's biblical. So before I invite you that desire, desire, desire to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to invite some people up here that have agreed to pray with you and to ask the Lord to fill you with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Fourthly, you need to ask specifically for the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I want this. And if you don't really want it, the Lord knows your heart. But, it, but you need, Lord, I want this. I desire the, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, speak with other tongues, get this fullness of the Spirit in my life, this initial physical evidence of the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Fifth, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And, and, and that's more than just saying glory, 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 hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Say, Lord, thank you for saving me. Thank you, Lord, for all the blessings in my life. Thank you, Lord, for the church that I'm a part of. Thank you, Lord, for our pastor who preaches the word of God. Thank you, Lord, for all of these things that you do in our lives. Let's thank God specifically for the things that he's done for us. Sixth, and this is a key, pray out loud. The evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit is speaking in an unknown tongue. And this can't happen if you don't pray out loud. If you don't use your tongue, if you don't open your mouth and talk, and, and I've seen people seeking the Holy Spirit and they just, they won't even, 
Won't even open their mouth. Won't even talk to the Lord. Won't talk to the Lord. And seventh, let me tell you, you may sense words in your mind that you haven't learned and you do not understand, but it's up to you to surrender and speak it out. It's up to you. So what do we take away from this message this morning? First of all, the promise of the baptism with the Holy Spirit is for you. God doesn't have a select few that he loves more than he does others. <clears throat> I, saw, I saw a guy in a 7-Eleven yesterday, a fellow that I used to go to church with at another place, and, and uh, he had on a t-shirt, and, and I, I love the sentiment of it, but, but it's not true, okay? The, the top line in very bold letters said, Jesus loves you, Has, Jesus hearts you, okay? Jesus loves you. And then below that it says, but I'm his favorite. No. No, no, no. Jesus doesn't love me any more than he loves you. Jesus doesn't love pastor any more than he loves you. Jesus wants to work in your life. You see, the promise of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is for you. <clears throat> Number two, you must be open to receive the Spirit. God will not force the Spirit power on you. And thirdly, we must be scattered. God has given us the power to share his message. Let's use it.